Okay. So one thing, as soon as I read about this, I kind of wanted to get everybody's take on it. Uh, it's the case of uh, Atival Ranel, who is a critical theorist of sorts. Let me, let me look up what she actually is. Hang on. What her it's like uh, gender studies, I think she does. No, it's. I think she's a literature professor. Oh, uh, literature. I mean, honestly, when you get okay. into academia, all that stuff just kind of blends in with each other. So according oh, to the Wikipedia page, uh, she's an American academic who writes about continental philosophy, literary studies, psychoanalysis, feminist philosophy, political philosophy, and ethics. Um, she is a professor of the humanities and in the departments of German languages and literature and comparative literature at New York University. Oh, comparative literature. <laughs> there we go. Where That's where the really post-structural crazy shit comes from, this comparative literature. Look, when, every, she, when everything's she, a text, everything's a text, Donald, everything's comparative literature. Where she co-directs the Trauma and Violence Transdisciplinary Studies Program. Oh, She sounds like a, a really experienced candidate to direct that. As, as Jacques Derrida, professor of philosophy, she teaches at the European Graduate School in Sassfay? Uh, she's written about topics such as uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, Alexander Graham Bell setting up electro electronic transmission systems in the early 20th century, the structure of the test in legal, pharmaceutical, artistic, scientific, zen, and historical domains, stupidity, the disappearance of authority, childhood, and deficiency. Um, so that, so that university is supposed to be fake, right? Like that town you said, you said it's from sounds fake, but the university... What's the deal with that university? So it's like a it's a privately funded specialized uh, internal international grad school, which awards uh, masters and doctoral degrees in art, health, health, arts, health and society, and philosophy, art, and critical thought. It's uh, okay. yeah, it's, it's, it's accreditation is a little sketch, but it has a few prestigious people associated with it. Uh, Giorgio um, Agamben, I think his name yeah, is. Yeah, Agamben. He's like ah, he's actually interesting. If you're interested in Carl Schmidt, yeah, uh, Chantel Ackerman, like uh, who is, um, don't know who that is. She is, I've seen her name before. I'm trying to remember. She was a, yeah, she's a famous film director. She did, um, whatever stuff starred herself, actually. She sort of straddled, straddled the line between, um, kind of, um, gallery installation art and like regular cinema. But, you know, some of her stuff's in the Criterion collection. She's pretty famous. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, so there's a few like you know prestigious people involved in it, but it's so it's, it's not Trump University. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, so this woman became uh, extra famous uh, basically for being the subject of a Title IX investigation. Um, and I've seen people on like social media talking about you know kind of her notorious reputation for yeah you know, basically doing what a lot of people do at the upper levels of academia, which is run a fiefdom and use their subordinates either as like unpaid slave labor or basically a harem. <laughs> and I don't know, I just kind of wanted to talk about this just because I like, you know, it's um, what made this thing like extra notorious beyond even that was that there was this letter written and signed by such luminaries as Judith Butler, uh, Sylvie Zizek, uh, but also like several people who are like prominent, like, you know, Sort of academic feminists. Um, wow. They got Judith and, Butler and Savoy Zizek on the same side of an issue. Basically, and the what was so notorious about the letter is that it basically 
It disparages the victim, uh, describes him, him as waging a malicious campaign against Rennell and basically kind of throwing Rennell's credentials at the university and saying that there will be an uproar, presumably from the people who signed the letter, if they don't give her a fair hearing and basically implicitly let her off the hook. Do we have more, does anyone have more details on what exactly the allegations leveled at her were? Well, basically what it, what it comes down to is, well, he basically claimed sexual assault and the internal investigation in NYU cleared him of that because um, basically, you know, there was no other witnesses. So, which is why most of those things get thrown out. But he basically had a long string of email emails running back and forth between him and her where she used a lot of, uh, you know, very like intimate language. Um, and yeah basically let's see yeah because that's i knew there was a string of emails and it's just you know someone who's worked in academia before you just don't do that it's it's just one of the first things they make you learn they make you take a class where it's like you are not allowed to be intimate you're not even allowed to hang out with like you know people and that it's just yeah. you're not you're not you don't do that stuff all right, so basically the weird affair thing started with her, like, inviting the guy to stay with her in Paris. And one of the first that make, make him read poetry with her in bed. This, like, escalated from, like, the guy reading poetry to her, like, in bed with her just like pulling him in and like kissing kiss her and like touch her breast and grinding against her and all that weird shit and they so basically she she was yeah like he emailed he like told her that like that was not okay it's really unprofessional and like it was and the way she responded to this was basically like refusing to work with him unless she allowed her to do that and like Holy shit. continually mocked her. Yeah, yeah, like like refused to be cooperative working with him and like um like in like the emails he she referred to him as her her cocker spaniel emphasis oh on the cock um jesus that like, is that is so like oh that's so heideggerian and like gross and slimy at the same time yeah it's really slimy unprofessional behavior so heideggerian well a big part of her reputation is like she's like she has she has like this very like bohemian kind of affectation um that seems to be the um sort of a part of her image or whatever. I think it's also was kind of part of the fence that I heard some people making that, you know, they were, they were interpreting her bohemian queer affectation as, you know, an outsider, you know, in the incorrect way because of their internalized biases or something, but that's obviously sexual harassment that is completely. Well, yeah. Okay. She tried to say like, because she was, she was like, uh, she's queer and he's gay. She was doing it ironically. It was like a part of her. Wow. Offense. Yeah. That's bullshit. Have you, have you considered the diacritical implications of this? 
<laughs> I don't think you have. So basically, you know, this comes out and she has a bunch of people defending her. And it really comes it really comes across like when, you know, there's some dude in the music scene gets outed as being a rapist and yeah. all the dudes in the bands and women as well and the bands that are their friends with all, you know, basically unify the defend them and cast the victim out of the uh music scene. It kind of reminds me of that. And with you know, you have the same thing with frats and stuff, basically. It's basically you have these post-structuralist feminist critical theory academics who are acting like bros, like frat bros. Well, and one thing one of them one of them argued in in like her defense was, well, this is fucked up because Title IX was was uh, designed to like defend women, and a man's using it, and that's fucked up. Yeah, and that's just idiotic beyond belief because it's essentializing gender to the point where only like men can't be abused, only women and the feminine can be abused, and that's just insane essentialization. And I mean, it's it's obvious that because of the overvailing power dynamics, most abuse is male to female. But it doesn't mean that, you know, the power dynamics on a micro level can't exist in that way. Yeah, it's also in line with society's prejudices that, like, men can't be sexually harassed or raped. Well, yeah, so I meant is that it's completely, uh, it completely buys into the whole essentialization of gender. Well, maybe it doesn't. Like, it, maybe the implication is, well, this was designed as, like, a holistic thing to holistically, like, change society give an advantage to women and so women actually can abuse men but that's okay because it, it they're they're still on the whole generally oppressed so until things are there's some kind of parody you know what i mean but she's such a good feminist she's so woke guys well and she said nice things about palestine she can't be doing that she can't she can't be sexually harassing people the thing or is, abusing is, her position of power. Is anyone actually defending her, saying that she didn't do these things, or are they just saying that it's okay that she did these things? I mean, that's, that's, there's like there's, a mix. It's a like mix. it's like it is almost like with any kind of like denial or or like any kind of you know this whole thing like Holocaust deniers are always it's always like half like it never happened and it's a good thing that it happened you know right I never borrowed the car but it was broken when you gave it to me and... yeah yeah and well and one thing that's whole interesting this thing where it never happened but if it did they deserved it well, right when they talk about like the Ukrainian famine. <laughs> And one thing that's interesting too is they try and like defend her like on her commitment to like 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 standing she was she's like standing through her theory she's like standing up for the oppressed people and opening up spaces in the discourse but it's like i read like her famous like thing on like the rodney king tape and it's like yeah yeah i'm sure that um it was actually um her article about how rodney king exposes the limits of the tv medium that really inspired the bloods and the crips to have their troops truce during the riots (laughs) Like that really, I'm sure like there are plenty yeah. of people in Compton who, who read that like abstruse, like meandering article uh, talking about how, you know, if you think about it, there's a lot of cop shows on TV and the law, it, capital L, is inscribed into the design of the TV medium. And I know like all those people read that stuff and, you know, just decided we had enough and we're not going to take it anymore. What, Jake? You don't, you don't think Crips and Bloods read Art Forum? I mean, Art Forum said 
that the, the, this is the most important article ever written on on, on the TV or film mediums. No, I mean, honestly, it, I you, read you gotta, a lot you of gotta, you gotta grind. I've never you heard gotta, of this person. You got to grind to afford an art forum to subscription. What do you think they're slinging that stuff for? Yeah, um, exactly. It's it's the game. You got to win at the game, and then you can get your Avita Renell articles online. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, but seriously. I haven't heard of this person until now. I'll be completely honest. And I, you know, I read a lot of academic stuff. I went to grad school, so I don't know. This is fucking. Yeah, this is inside she, baseball. He doesn't really sound like that important of a person. Beyond, I actually, I, beyond I picked up one of her books. People. I picked up one of her books at like a university library in college. And I like started skimming through it. Uh, I think it was in the floor. I think it was like her book on Alexander Graham Bell or whatever. And it just, it was clear to me, like, okay, this is like, this is like an art object. Like, this looks like a Sophie Calais piece <laughs> or something like that. Like, this, this isn't like, this isn't, it, it's, this is one of those things. It's, it's basically writing philosophy as like a genre of literature, essentially. Yeah. This is what critical theory became after Marxism. It sounds like the lose when I try to read the lose. Like, when I read the lose, it's basically, I'm reading trippy poetry. That's that's yeah. basically all I get out of it. Yeah, pretty much. Like yeah, but she's definitely of that because if you if you read the way people talk about her too, like it's they they always talk about how great her writing is and how challenging and provocative it is, but they never talk about any of her actual ideas. Ideas are hardly the point, right? Um, I have trouble thinking of this situation apart from the transition in critical theory from Marxism and through structuralist thought and then the post-structuralists as a lot of Marxists follow Althusser into his psychotic break. A lot of um, people follow Deleuze and Guattari into a more metaphorical psychotic break. <laughs> um, and the whole reason for being of critical theory of this like alternative strand of philosophy dies and what you really have is sort of a repackaging of the aristocratic wisdom traditions of europe right <laughs> as radical theory holy shit that's a good point and because what i liked about analytical philosophy is that anybody could make an argument there's something democratic about it even if it was kind of yeah. you know reductive and and dry i mean a lot of abstract things are reductive and dry and have drained all the all the blood and life from it but you know what that's <laughs> that's sometimes just how, how it is when you're trying to communicate with everyone yeah right? and yeah that, that's why i like having a brother who studies analytic philosophy because we can always have an interesting discussion even if we don't agree on a particular thing yeah that's the thing like looking at her stuff um like really makes me feel like Bertrand Russell, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> or um, what's his name? Uh, the uh, Alan Socal. Yeah, Socal. I I love I love Socal. I love that yeah. guy. Oh yeah, like he, Science he, Wars was. You know, he was he was like you know trying to warn us about this. We yeah. Listen. Well, I think Helena Sheehan, who you know, mm. death, she made yeah. a, a pretty good comment about how this is kind of also endemic of a of of a greater problem in academia. And I, I thought maybe we could talk just a little bit, as you said, about the transition from how, how Marxism became critical theory or post-structuralism. And I really think that 
it was an ideological defeat of the workers movement almost that was accompanied with actual political and economic defeats as well and as well as with the collapse of the soviet union and all these other factors there's just this right wing and you see really see it starting in the 70s after 68 you see a, a right wing turn in all of the social sciences starting in france well there's the new revisionist history of the french revolution where this idea that it was actually horrible totalitarian thing created by the enlightenment ideology with francois Ferret. and at the same time foucault is developing these ideas that all forms of knowledge are just regimes of power to you know enforce certain hierarchies and therefore marxism is just a form of knowledge used as power and all knowledge is just a way of you know it's all and, and so and as you said it you know, you have a turn towards these weird aristocratic type philosophers right. where instead of um, Marx and Engels being the basis of your thought and materialism and the idea that, yes, there is such thing as objective reality, you have this turn towards Nietzsche, Heidegger, and... Um, Derrida. Like oh, well, Nietzsche and Heidegger are both right-wing, you know, counter-enlightenment philosophers. You know, Nietzsche was basically um, a butthurt aristocrat facing the rise of capitalist modernity. Heidegger was a national socialist. They both rejected the principle of democracy itself. And so it's very strange that all of a sudden, and, and they also had this super relativistic ideology, like it's, it's almost complete moral relativism. And so you see this turn in leftist academia away from the sciences, away from materialism, instead towards this kind of relativism pioneered by Nietzsche and Heidegger, who are right-wing philosophers. Right. Well, yeah, I, so I, I also is, just like imagine imagine myself as like, okay, you're an, you're an academic in this institution and you're basically writing resistance or whatever and you're you know, you're writing things from a radical perspective while there's this thing going on outside of academia that's like changing society, right? Well, that thing basically kind of stops happening or goes away or loses power. And you're still in academia and your whole shtick is basically geared towards this kind of rebellion. But now it just has no like raison d'etre or, or direction of any sort. So it just be kind of becomes this thing for itself in like in and yeah. for itself where you're just being bohemian for the sake of being bohemian it's sort of like um it's sort of like how dada became transmuted over time into jeff coons right yeah that's the path of the left in the 20th century and by the time you hit the end there's literally nothing left that that it means all you have left is the subculture and the you know set of moral intuitions around the subculture and, and the sense of, of betterness yeah. and the kind well, of when i understood foucault kind of was if you want to read Foucault as an insurrectionary against order, it's your own personal insurrection. Your way of life and your lifestyle basically become the insurrection. And so the idea is to kind of like live your life in defiance of all the norms of society. <sighs> I, and I'm, it, I'm not even sure that works. Like his work is so paranoid that he um all the articulations of freedom, he's very skeptical of. Oh, yeah. He, he, I'd say he's still skeptical of this, but it's the only thing you're left with. If you uh, reject the idea that any greater narrative is just simply a way to oppress you, then you're really only left with yourself. I think one of the most fascinating giant shifts that's happened in recent history 
started in the late 1960s, it really took off in the 70s, which was the rise of a sort of powerful individualism, a feeling throughout Western society, it began in America, but it came here very quickly, that I as an individual are the most important thing, and what I feel, what I want, is the most truthful, authentic and right thing and the idea that you should be told what to do by politicians, by those in power over you, is wrong. It's inauthentic. What, you should be true to yourself. That became a very powerful thing and it rose up. It was good in many ways. It liberated people and, and stopped us being told what to do by old corrupt elites. That's really good. But it had a very strange effect on politics. Because if you run a political party, you have to get people together united in a single goal. But if you've got a society of millions of individuals who all have their own desires, their own truth, their own idea of what is true, then it's very difficult to get a collective movement together. And I think the real effect, not just on politics, but the real effect is on the radical left. Because if you look at the 1960s, both in America and here, it was called the New Left. And they united together. It came out of the civil rights movement and they gave themselves up to a movement. So, for example, in America in the civil rights movement, young white activists, middle class activists, went down and joined with black activists and gave their lives up in some cases, but gave up years to struggle to change the world. And they did. If you then get individualism rising up, what you don't want to do is give yourself up for years to a movement which you just subsume yourself into. You want to express yourself. And why I think Patti Smith's interesting is because she's one of the first people you see making a shift from the idea that radicalism is about giving yourself up to a group and becoming part of something bigger, to an idea that no, the way to be radical is to be a self-expressive individual and the way to do it is through art. And even if you can say, well, this is just another way of controlling people, which it really is, in the end, it's all you're left with. You want to have some kind of rebellion against the greater things that, you know, oppress society and humans. This all reminds me of something that uh, Nick Land said on Twitter about, <laughs> I swear to God, about, um, I think he- He's another Delusian. <laughs> I think he was talking about Deleuze. He based, and, but he, was, he said something along the lines of, you know, these uh, 20th century French- uh, crypto capitalist philosophers and Marxist lambskins like that, that really what was, ha and just to extrapolate on that, really what was happening here is that in so many ways, these people had to, if they were intellectually honest, they were, had to break with the idea that, you know, there was really any kind of communist movement that was going anywhere and that, you know, they have to reframe defeat as some kind of, if not affirmative philosophy, then something maybe disconsolate in just the right way mm. that it can still be an attractive ideal world. Like I think a lot of these philosophers, especially in France are dealing with a post-war intellectual culture that we would recognize as having something like celebrity. Um, from what I understand, philosophers were on game shows. Sometimes they were public figures. It's, you know, there's not like a big space in American public life that's like that. Um, whereas, you know, there are a couple interviews here and there where Derrida or Foucault will cut loose about the biz, you know. They sound like a, you know, a withered professional wrestler or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there is this sort of rock star kind of aura around philosophers. I think that's not just limited to France. Like fucking Zizek is well known 
in America. Well, and if you honestly like, it sounds like it was true about this lady too. Like, if you listen to the way that you know people, people talk about her, yeah, yeah, people orbited around her, and you know, yeah. I also read some stories on social media. Again, it's all secondhand, but people were describing how you know, like everybody like walked around on eggshells to try and stay on her good side. Oh God, that's horrifying. Yeah, I or, mean, like, it's like a nightmare. Yeah, I have a whole theory about the political economy of academia, where basically what you have is all these different people competing to accumulate intellectual property that they can collect rent on, but they're also trying to accumulate a kind of cultural status in a way and climb up this vertical hierarchy of status in order to build up their own, what you could call a fiefdom basically in academia. And you have these almost like private regimes of intellectual property accumulations of these rock star professors of all these students who kiss up to them and do all this free labor for them and all this research for them and they you know produce this content that gets paid and they get paid thousands and thousands of dollars and get to go on trips to france and shit so you really do have this kind of micro economy of i don't know like caste privilege and also a kind of you know, petty bourgeois rent seeking with the intellectual property aspect of it. Well, they evolved out of medieval institutions, you know, where you basically had like this master apprentice relationship. But what, yeah. it, what really accelerates all this, it's kind of like the same dynamic in Hollywood, really. You know, like producers like Harvey Weinstein can get away with what they're doing because there's a very limited number of positions and an extreme glut on the job market of people looking to fill them. And, you know, with the trajectory of the academia, especially in the United States, has taken over the last 30 years as this, um, you know, thing that's seen as the, uh, you know, the master key to class transcendence for people in the lower and middle classes. You have a glut of people within academia trying to fill um, a very minute set of positions. Yeah, which exactly. Gives, which gives somebody in her position an inordinate amount of power. Exactly. And that's why, in a way, like, you know, as tempting as it is to be like, oh, look at, you know, this just shows how much the post-structuralists are all just moral relativists and shit. But really, this is a class issue in a way that I don't think people are people are not going to look at it as a class issue. We're going to look at it as an ideological issue primarily, I think. But really, this is this shows this is this is a class issue within, a, 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 you know, the academy. And it also, you know, just hearing people say that academics are pearls is a joke. Like, yeah. I've never heard a bigger joke ever. <laughs> no, it's, it's completely ridiculous. And, but I did see a pretty good, excuse me, tr- uh, uh, tweet string. I forget who, I forget who sent it though, but he was basically like talking about how, okay, well let's take sex out of this for a second. And you know, the, he said, she said stuff like, but just look at like the amount of attention that she was demanding of this person who was her student, you know, uh, go, you know, Go pick up my laundry. Take me to the airport. Take me from the airport. Like all yeah, that, that stuff itself who, is wrong. Yeah, yeah. All this, like all that, like there are all these, like you know, professors like demanding all this inordinate attention above and beyond the work of being a graduate student uh, in exchange for nothing. Like that's ex- that's exploitation. Yeah, I mean, honestly, these graduate school professors really what they do is they try to find ways to squeeze as much unpaid labor out of their students as possible to get them on their. And so, if you do more stuff for them, you get on their good side. They write you good letters of recommendation. They give you, you know, internships and et cetera, et cetera. It's just such a. It's so fucked up. I, 
I'm so glad I'm not in academia. Like, that's just, it's such a fucking racket. Yeah. Same. There's useful school. There's like useful skills to learn there. Like, I think it is, you know, if you have the opportunity to have it paid for by the school, it's worth getting a master's degree in history or philosophy. But, yeah. you know, I don't think that it's really worth spending time fucking around in. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, my, I, that's my personal life advice. I mean, I, yeah. If we're talking about this, like, you know, there's a million of you and only one of me kind of like labor market when it comes yeah. to the humanities. And, and every kid playing right. with like starts Bono getting into this stuff. They think that they're going to be the next Zizek. They're going to be the next uh, Foucault. You, you Follow your or... dreams, kids. You, you know, you, you can be the next, like, you can be the next very, very useful revolutionary that doesn't have to know any math. Like, you can, you can really contribute to the revolutionary project that doesn't exist yet without having to learn anything about the world just by studying thought systems like yeah. there's something very you know attractive about this yeah exactly you can you can it's, be it's, radical you can be a, for in in, in this a, very individualistic way though and i think something like has an, changed it's like an emergent honey trap there's like it's it's like such it's so intoxicating it's but, like Lex, you look, let's look at how it used to be with the left for example right like look at rosa luxemburg she did go to college and she did write a thesis but then she started working for the SPD as right. a party as a party teacher, and she did all of her intellectual work in that sort of environment. You said a very important word there, party. Yeah, and yep. you know, we have no real party, and we don't have a large workers' movement today, obviously. But the thing is, is basically when that faded away, you know, all of the leftists, you know, where else are these leftist intellectuals who used to be attached to a party or not even attached to it per se, maybe part of currency. You had cultural organizations that you could be part of and not necessarily be a card carrying party member that intellectuals would be in when you, you had used to have intellectual institutions autonomous from academia. Right. Right. But that, the, the way that they're defending this person, you'd think the, the, the fate of the party was at stake. Yeah, they're talking about it like in that Fall of Eagles episode. Right, that, right, right. Where how they portray Lenin. I think there should be an inquiry. Nadia, tell Comrade Mart of Comrade Bauman's role in the Iskra network. I know his role, Comrade. Don't play the grandfather with me. It doesn't work. And don't be so childish. Bowman is an outstanding agent. Not average, not good. Outstanding. In party matters, I would trust him above anyone else I know. Now, you're asking that he be disciplined? How? Expelled? Yes, yes. Certainly, if it's true. For personal misdemeanors. Let me tell you, comrade, I rule an inquiry as being out of order, as outside the competence of Iskra and detrimental to the interests of the party. Now, if you want my private views on the matter, you can have them, privately. You can't, you can't separate private from public like that. Can't you see that, man? We are what we do, you, me, Bauman, all of us. Party morality isn't simply loyalty to the party. It's, it's the highest level of ethical consciousness yet afforded the human species. Oh, metaphysics, Julius. Another time, perhaps, we may speculate. Right now, we are trying to make the revolution possible. Sir, you'll do nothing. I will do my duty. That is to say, I will protect Comrade Bauman from any move on your or anybody else's part to expel or discipline him. Yeah, where Lenin Lenin like fails at you know hashtag Me Too and yeah. you know like argues that this uh, this like 
awful abuser. I forget what he does. He like ha- makes he it like basically a pregnant the woman. Story, comes, yeah, it's horrible. He basically um, impregnates some a, a woman and then insults her so harshly in a series of letters that she'd commit suicide. Yeah, it's revolting. And, yeah. and apparently this is true. I like, think that she was like in love with him and wanted to have kids with him, and all. it was just really fucked. He was a really fucked guy. And you know, Lennon basically says. Oh, we have to keep him in the party. He's such a good right. militant. But, and, you know, that's fucked up, obviously. Yeah, it's fucked up, but, like, you know, you can see the argument there that, oh, this person's practical like, uh, they have import is so important. That are so important that we can't let go of them, despise, you know, their horrible moral, you know, at, and I think you can't really separate the two of some someone's morality and no, yeah. moral activity within yeah. a party. Yeah, absolutely not. Separators. I think my name is making a false argument there. But anyway, yeah, but but we fast forward a century later, and the left has the same amount of self-importance about this. The, what what does she? Yeah, we're talking about a leader. Oh, no, like she did the Bolshevik she, party, and the fate of history is going to depend on her. Like, like how, Zizek how, and Judith Butler on the same side. This is like the U.S. and the USSR voting for Israel together. Like it's no, they no. never are on the same side. <laughs> who who? Who is going to point out the ways that Heidegger was unconsciously influenced by the telephone medium? Who's going to point that out? <laughs> I mean, God, people will talk about that kind of shit, but they won't talk about how Heidegger was literally theorizing national socialism. Yeah, d- yeah, Hitler as the sign. Yeah, like if you yeah. read Heidegger correctly, it's Nazi shit. Yeah, it's so, so there were so many butthurt, so many butthurt Heideggerians when the Black Book came out because they spent so long denying that the whole idea of authenticity is designed for volkish nationalism you can't that whole idea doesn't make sense about volkish nationalism but anyway beyond that look you could you could derrida it you could read it differently than it's intended for your own purposes which is and i'm fine with that like i think you know like i think uh, that's useful that's generative it's better than being a nazi so it's better at least admit that at least like admit this guy was straight up a nazi and was you know yeah. philosophizing his nazi beliefs yeah this is a very useful and affirming nazi that i can read so is carl schmidt i think his uh, insights on political power in the state are decisive yet i think it's obvious that he was philosoph he was philosophizing as a complete enemy in the class struggle as a you know as a philosopher yeah. of the the militant fascist bourgeoisie but but guys without 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 uh, without Rennell, who's gonna do a bunch of crank and then write books about it in the early nineties? Who's gonna do that? <laughs> in, in Wikipedia, one of her concepts is called "quote being on drugs" quote with dashes. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I know <laughs> they do have a pretty good like um like uh, excerpt from her uh, telephone book. This is from the beginning. Warning: the telephone book is going to resist you. Dealing with a logic and topos of the switchboard, it engages the destabilization of the addressee. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, <laughs> is to learn how to read with your ears. In addition to listening for the, for the telephone, you are being asked to tune your ears to noise frequencies, to anti-coding, to the inflated reserves of random indeterminateness. In a word, you are expected to stay open to the static and interference that will occupy these lines. We've attempted to install a switchboard which, vibrating a continuous current of electricity, also replicates the effects of scrambling. At first, you may find the uh, the way the book runs to be disturbing, but we've had to break up its logic typographically. Like the electronic impulse, it is flooded with signals. 
to crack open the, the closural sovereignty of the book, we have feigned silence and disconnection, suspending the tranquil cadencing of paragraphs and conventional divisions. At indicated times, schizophrenia lights up, jamming the switchboard, fracturing the a latent semantics with multiple calls. You will become sensitive to the switching on and off of interjected voices. And this goes it goes on like that. I mean, that sounds like like really therapeutic Nick Land. No, no. Here's the thing. It's it, that I because that's the book that I actually looked at when I like came across it one day. Like it's basically just a really thick, really abstruse zine. It's a zine. Yeah. Like you've got you go to any zine fair, you see like fifty things like that, but they're way shorter. God. And yeah, and the person this handing is, this yeah. is like considered intellectualism in this time period. It's just yeah, decadence theory is real. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, like it just it, starts in 1968 instead of 1914. Like, <laughs> like the the thing, you know, there's there's a real responsibility you're taking on when like crediting somebody's like expertise or work because it creates a power dynamic. The whole idea of humanism and the enlightenment that people are so skeptical of is that you could only respect that you could find a way to respect only the authority structures that have a rational basis right and here we are god forbid we only have rational forms of authority structures right right but but you know here we are like people have so doubled down on this idea that it's impossible to do this that we are propping up this person even though they're clearly an, abu an abusive person it took you know, it took advantage of exploited of you know sounds like raped somebody like the, the thing that it just you know what it kind of reminds me of it kind of reminds me of subway emboldening a child molester to sell sandwiches <laughs> and then i realize at least sandwiches feed people the anyway, I, what Helena Sheehan said about this is pretty good. I'm just going to read her comment. Yeah, that's going to end up in her collected works, that Facebook post. Sometimes when intellectuals are exposed as engaging in pathological behavior, other intellectuals are quick to dissociate such pathology from their work. But sometimes the pathology is in the work, too. This is truer than ever with postmodernism. Undermining rationality and responsibility has consequences. And honestly, like... It's it's so weird because that almost sounds like the Jordan Peterson like right right, it's, right it's almost like like the all right and the Jordan Peterson types are gonna go nuts over this because they're gonna go like, oh, this just shows that you know the SJWs just want to destroy everything and you know they're finally and right. but they're also eating each other up and they're eating each other alive in the postmodern neo Marxism and it's, it's all collapsing but. I think this does show the absolute moral bankruptcy of post-structuralist ideology and this whole moral relativism that has taken over left-wing academia. I think that this is that it, it is there is an ideological aspect to that, and it is the truth of postmodernism. And people will get mad at that and say, "But oh, look, Zizek, he's supporting her, and and he's a Marxist critic of postmodernism." Oh yeah, whatever. But listen, Zizek talks about Lacan. He's 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 a continental like nut job too. He's wacky. He's out there. And the point is, is well, that he's also it, friends. He's also friends with her. They taught a class together for years. And it's also the fact that it's primarily a class issue. This is about class solidarity. He has class solidarity right. as an academic who has a lot of cultural capital and a lot of intellectual property 
and you know is controversial and that's the thing that really they, shines they, through that's it's a defensive yeah. social position it's a defensive yeah, it's, his it's article primarily that his article is like i hate this person and they're a complete fraud but i will defend them yeah, yeah I, exactly. hate, I hate i hate this person who i taught a class together with multiple times over the decade yeah i hate this person i mean even if all the stuff that she was asking that guy to do was non-sexual it's still not appropriate in my opinion and it should be grounds for dismissal yeah i mean it's just you're just you're making de- like extra demands of somebody's time beyond what their role is in the institution and you're clearly doing it because people are desperate for jobs in academia. You know, yeah. You're exploiting people. I mean, she's, that's, just that's... Ex- she's just exploiting people. And the fact that it's sexual just makes it even worse. It makes it even and, more. And you, you know what? It, it wouldn't be that bad if, you know, like you see this kind of shit, like in any kind of trade industry, you see it in the world of salons where they basically want you to pay your dues and shit and work for free basically until you can cut hair. You know what I mean? Like, but the thing is like those kind of like petty bourgeois people make no claims to any kind of like egalitarian or emancipatory or resistance or anything like that. But these people do like these people claim that like the theory they're writing is going to like liberate people somehow. Yeah. Meanwhile, like there they're, they're is literally this... just engaging in the most kind of like pe- like petty bourgeois, and that's actually what makes these people so fucking disgusting. Because most of these people come from like the middle and upper class, and they basically landed here because they didn't want to work at their dad's firm, and so they like to think that they're not participating in, you know, in the kind mm-hmm. of like exploitation that makes the world go round. But really, like they 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 were raised by that class, and they have that they've internalized all those same kind of power dynamics, and it's just kind of basically yep. playing out in their own lives. But in like the most petty, like narcissistic, small potatoes bullshit. Oh, and so yeah, yep. it's it's that's that's the truth. And, and that's are- the thing. Like for all the shit about like you know, the whole you know the the whole thing that the right is fed on has been like oh campus SJWs. You know people calling for affirmative action stuff. One thing you never hear in all like this call out culture or any of that is they'll talk about racial quotas they'll talk about gender quotas they'll talk about every kind of quota but they won't talk about class quotas they won't talk about making sure that the university is mostly staffed proportionally to the amount of poor people that exist in society because they know all those people know that or most of them know that they did that they'd be out on their ass well yeah because it's an inherently elitist institution but there's also this liberal idea that the academy is supposed to be this kind of neutral zone of pro, but it's also a place where progress can develop, you know, and it's this whole idea that uh, the ideas that drive progress forward and its inevitable march are going to be produced in the academy. And so the academy kind of has to be more communal and kind of a, a, a kind of almost like a slightly autonomous zone from capital in a way, and well, the way a lot of people conceive of it. And it needs to be kind of this, this bright guiding light in liberal society that will produce the ideals that allow humanity to perfect itself. I mean, if you think about it, the the workers movement in the United States and the new left are are kind of shattering at the same point where you still have like the high watermark of post-war liberalism. And there was like a soft social democratic like dream of like, you know, universal education still floating in the air. Mm-hmm. So th- there was at one point, <laughs> believable democratic pretense to that sort of thing. Well, there and, was a lot of good intellectuals in that period in the academy. There actually, you know, there actually used to be good intellectuals in the academy. 
And so, then post-structuralism just fucking rotted everyone's brain. Well, I, I, I think it's, I think, I think it's, it's a little more complicated than that. No, no listen, I, yeah, I, I, I think it's a little more complicated than no, that. It's it's obviously more complicated than that. I would say the neo-Marxist uh, post-structuralist feminists no. came in and rotted the uh, Brad Kennedy's brain. <laughs> yeah. No, but seriously, yeah. I, you look at the historiography of a topic. You look at the stuff produced in the 60s and 70s. Then you look at the stuff produced in the 80s and 90s. And there's obvious decline. In quality, in all regards. Yes. Although I have to say, well, I'd say actually before, it's more like it's like it really starts in the in the sixties as well. But Donald, the theory that came before, right? A lot of it was Stalinist apologist Marxism. There was some That's good better. stuff. Even That's the better. liberal stuff. You know what? Still I, better. I, still better. Listen. listen. All right. I will. I will say this. I will say this. You know, I don't want to live in a world where this is critical theory. Give me the gulag apologist, totalitarian, like Marxist professor over this, you know, therapeutic, like micro hell. <laughs> Please don't get me wrong. But like I'm not talking the, about the, the sins, even the liberals. sins, the sins of structuralist critical theory, a perfectly modernist project. Okay. <laughs> like by negation express themselves in post-structuralism right so the dominant paradigm of critical theory during a a modernist period more or less that it, it was yes it was you know getting into you know the marxists were getting into anti-humanism blah, 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 but like they still fundamentally had this emancipatory scientific point of view um, I mean, Althusser, I think, is kind of, he's moving away from that. He's trying to create a new type of Marxism, a new type of, I guess, what you could call critical theory that doesn't have to maintain this universalist, emancipatory, humanistic core to it. And so it's almost an idea. And that also, and that, combine that with the anti-enlightenment kind of negative dialectic of the Frankfurt School, and you have a perfect ideology just for being the ultimate contrarian and critiquing <laughs> the critique of the critique, you know, the, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's just well, deconstruction you, without well, any kind of positive vision of how things could be better. And the, I have I have a lot of respect for the Frankfurt School. I don't, I, I, I think the way that people... I don't. <laughs> I, I, know you don't. I know you don't, but I think the way that you read and, and we are compelled to read the Frankfurt school is through this like structuralist post-structuralist critical theory universe. Yeah. And, and, and not, not through the universe of, you know, uh, orthodox and classical and, you know, like Leninist, you know, Marxism. Well, that's how I did try to read the Frankfurt school. I, I think, really I think you, I think you can consistently read them as like, look like living through the eclipse of the possibility of communism in their century as Marxists, you know what I mean? I, I, I think like that's that, that awareness is in their work and, and they were correct about it. And, I just, and I think Marcuse is a difficult thing to live through. I, th and, I really think that the only one of those people who really had much of interest throughout his whole entire life was Marcuse because he at least saw the potentials. He saw the contradictions of his times and what they really were. And he saw the potentials for changes and even if he didn't always have perfect politics and made a lot of wacky philosophy, I at least will give him credit for throwing his cards on the table 
and not just being trying to like be like Adorno and be this a few snob completely critically isolated from everything in society and just I don't know. It's, it's the, the like the abstraction of critical theory comes out of the Frankfurt School, right? Yeah. Like and I see it I see that basically as meaning okay, let's do marxism but without the class struggle and let's turn marxism into sociology. Well, Adorno fucking hated sociology. Was distinctly trying to do something else. Yeah, but I think that I think like, that's what he ends up with anyway. I think when you try to do Marxism without class, I, I know I understand that Adorno's anti-positivism. Like these people and, are, are essentially Hegelians, and so yeah, I, I mean I understand and, that Adorno until is, until Althusser, the dominant strains of critical theory are Hegelian Marxist. Yeah, I mean right. Althusser is. These people think, are these people are decent like historians of the human experience, right? Like if you read them in a humanistic way, I think you get a lot out of them. But yeah, like I, I guess what you're getting at is because of I don't know. I I have because of what they went through, they don't have any more hope for the proletariat except for Marcuse who's looking for the new expressions, the new, you know, revolutionary subject, which is a problem in itself. Cause that's kind of what the yeah. end notes people try to do, but I still have more uh, respect. I, I think, I think end notes does something interesting is basically like tries to maintain that, but by process of elimination is basically like, well, it's not gonna be this collectivity. It won't be that it's not gonna be this. And, um, it won't be everyone left out. And I mean, but it could still happen. Which I mean, is kind of like a kind of a reducto ad absurdum for uh, for Marcuse. I mean, I guess I think Marcuse though, like you had the national liberation struggles, you had the student struggles against bureaucracy, and it is true, yes, these struggles in the end did just lead to the modern form of capitalism we have today. But at the same time, I think those yes. were progressive struggles that were worth throwing your weight behind, even if they were flawed. And I Absolutely. think that. I think Marcuse did the right thing by, you know, supporting the Vietnamese and supporting the student rebellions and even, you know, critically supporting the hippies because they yeah, were yeah, at yeah. least trying to find a new way of living. So speaking speaking of the hippies, I have our next I have article I wanted to just read this to you all. It's from the August 25th edition of The Economist. Uh, the title is With Spirits Kaleidoscopic Transformational Festivals. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> what the fuck does that even mean? Hold, wait, wait, Jake, 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 please, please, hold on. I take a bong rip for that one. Okay, I'm ready. <coughs> wow, our soundboard is really getting a workout. <laughs> All right, come on, Jake, let's hear it. Amid wafts of incense and marijuana smoke, <laughs> what's that? Words <laughs> of smiling folk in fairy-like garb, or for a few, just body paint, dance in a patchwork a patchwork of majestic forest glades near the town of Tidewater, Oregon. Others meditate in yoga postures. Some caress crystals or each other in gently writhing snuggle puddles. Color colorfully painted sides read. read Redesign the paradigm, make love to the mystery, and on paths to compost toilets, 
conscious pooping this way. A speaker who replaces a DJ on the main stage proclaims that humans were, quote, born to serve the earth and leads the flock, many with raised hands, in prayers to the four cardinal directions. Four directions. Thus began the beloved festival at which some 2,500 people pitched tents or splurged for a luxury glamping yurt for four days of sacred activities that ended on August 13th. These included uh, Kundalini and Galactivated Yoga, Sufi soul singing, crystal bowl healing, medicinal poetry, Thai massage, Latino storytelling, Native American shamanism, gong meditation inspired by NASA data from deep space, grief witch rituals from Burkina Faso's Dagara tribe, and rave-like takes on oriental ecstatic dance. Astonishingly, your correspondent saw no one snap a selfie. The beloved festival is about community, not ego, says its founder, Elliot Raisnick. So anyone who comes should be comfortable making, quote, deep eye contact with strangers. Mm. Tickets started at $265.77. Whoa. Deep gotta, eye contact. You got to be really deep. deep to go. I mean, it sounds like they're on a fuck ton of drugs. So there's probably some really good stuff you can buy if you get in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, the, so sorry. Let's, so let's get it out of the way. There's, they probably have all of the best things squandered on them. Okay. Let's get that out of the way. That's how class works. Here, crystal MDMA. Just ketamine. That's that's what makes us different than the Pure Christians. LSD, so it makes us know? different than the Christians and the Stoics and the whole West. Probably got the peyote cactus. Is that we know that the wicked do have the best stuff. It's true. DMT. <laughs> Beloved is one of a booming constellation of transformational festivals spreading from its stronghold in the Western United States, numbering dozens and with names like Soul Play, Sonic Bloom. Connection Campout, that's connection with a K, Ooh. Still Dream, Wonderlust, and Symbiosis. They blend environmentalism with a pagan communal spirituality that some visitors accumulate with psychedelic drugs. Many of these festivals, Call beloved it. included, ban alcohol sales. Tenets of this subculture include the exaltation of sexuality, participatory art, and radical self-expression, a term popularized by Burning Man, the Granddaddy Transformational Festival, which opens its annual powwow to some 70,000 in the Nevada desert on August 26th. But because of the Trump era, even leisure is political, many also endow the movement with additional purpose. The idea, says Mr. Raisnick, is, quote, to use celebration to create change in a world racked by misdeeds. Mm. Devotees of trans transformational festivals debate how best to bring about the desired political change. Many, however, say it begins with ushering in an alternative consciousness by honoring water, land, animals, organic food and clothing, oppressed peoples, and the like. Moss Kane, a beloved visitor who works. Wait, at wait, wait! Did they just name oppressed peoples alongside like? Yeah, a bunch Plants of stuff. and animals. Oh fuck! That's alongside oh, fuck alongside that. organic food. Oh my god! Fuck that! Fuck these people! <laughs> yeah, um, Moss Kane, a beloved visitor who works at Two Spirit Shamanic Healing, a practice in Portland, Oregon, reckons that the boom in transformational festivals has already begun to chip away at the quote crumbling power of bad capitalism through the emergence of people of more people with older, wiser souls. All right. Now the thing is, the thing, yeah. 
the thing that's so grotesque about this is that it's 2018. You know what I mean? This is not really into this shit, though. Well, see, this is you know we've passed from the stages of uh, formal domination into real domination of um, spirituality, so that even you know whatever try to whatever transcendent experience you're trying to have, yeah, just relentlessly, relentlessly cheapened by how (laughs) by how instrumentalized this. All you gotta do to have your spiritual experience. You know, every weekend you can do it. You can probably find a festival like this. If you have enough money, go to this festival, camp out, do like, you know, a quarter of mushrooms and a gram of molly and you know, like fucking trip balls and walk around and fucking like we, what we did have the time of your life. And it's yeah, you're right. It's completely been cheapened at this point. Like, like yeah, we, we you can like eat bass salts and cut off your face for for like 500 bucks a pop wow that's the, that's the funny thing too is that wow. the psychedelic drug scene like i kind of was involved in it a while ago and there was still real acid going around but the research chemical thing was starting to become more and more popular and at this point the whole psychedelic drug scene is dominated by research chemicals yeah like to- like pretty much untested stuff that's i mean maybe yeah. it's been, been around for like what 20 years of now or... yeah like i wouldn't you would have to you couldn't pay me to go to a festival like this and take their acid i know i know a bunch of people that are into research chemicals that are that have their yeah. favorites you know what i mean like and they're probably insane well, well but it, it's, what what's so it, fucked the up effects, is like, the effects are long-term research we, we, we did way. for all right i i just want to mention for as a point of journalistic clarity we didn't really extrapolate on how mega laid you probably get if you're going for sexual exaltation or whatever like oh it's um, so creepy though it's yeah. like a fucking... furry convention for that shit like if you really <laughs> the, the furry like, convention if is that's your goal far, if that's your goal far. like weird orgies the furry conventions horrible anime conventions you know fur- furry conventions probably have better politics <laughs> it's funny that the politics is like bad capitalism because all these hippies are small proprietors or they're like bureaucrats or you know specialists who do this stuff on the weekend or some hippies they actually do manage to live a life of just like selling enough drugs at these things to go to the next one and then also like just keep on the road and you know those are the real like what people call books short for Wookiee. Like, there's a whole community of these people, and they're, they have the best psychedelic drugs, and that's why I knew some people who are kind of into this kind of stuff. So, so how and do they get I will the tell name? You, it is completely true that they believe that their consciousness raising is going to change the world, and it is, it, it is a correct answer to all of the suffering and oppression in this world. It's so, it's, so, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's so grotesque to me at this point that, like, this is, like, the thing that some people still buy into. I mean, it's, okay, so there, there's a political aspect to this. Others hope to affect political change with a more traditional lefty approach. Beloved hosts workshops on diversity, gender equality, and using empathy to fight, quote, divisive entitlement. Margie Marlowe, who ran Beloved's uh, Care Circle Sanctuary this year, so a big part of our job is alerting visitors to the privilege whites enjoy but do not earn. Beloved also offers education on the misstep of appropriating cultures by, for example, donning feather headdresses, says its community manager, Des Ramirez. Given the cultural mishmash of Beloved's program, huh. th- this approach may perplex some, but other, transformational, other transformational festivals do the same. What's that? 
think about what they said about how it's it's privilege that's not on that's unearned as the problem isn't that people have you know class privilege and racial privilege but it's that it's unearned privilege. Like, it's not meritocratic privilege yeah it's not meritocratic enough that's the problem with racism is that's not you know pure meritocracy oh god yeah. so bad if only we could work it down to like iqs and that sort of thing and you know strength yeah. then it would be great then yeah. racism would be good right because then you could earn it a race could earn it and that's what's important yeah it's these this this hippie shit is white as fuck though it's you know there's it, there, there's probably no black people there for them to even offend in the first place well and so. like look at like the long list of shit that they were doing it's like the main like la latino storytelling you know what uh, the fuck is Latino storytelling? I have no fucking, like, I have no idea. I'm, I'm just oh, I'm telling you, white hippies literally like... worship brown people as magical. They think that <laughs> they think that uh, they think indigenous people are magical. They think brown people are magical. They think that you know it's total it's weird also Orientalist type shit with Eastern philosophy. It's they and, and then but they think that they're like on the side of the oppressed when they really just fetishize these people and well and i could see i could actually see thinking like eastern shit is magical if it was like 1964 because mm. you know it, you would only be picking up like traces of like books about that place you know what i mean so it would seem like another world yeah well yeah. like this is the only this place is... you could read about that it was in uh nazi stuff <laughs> i'm not joking though that that whole idea that the east is mystic like there actually were nazis who traveled to the to tibet to meet with like these mystic secret chiefs since and to learn like the ancient like mystical spiritual soul of the aryan race or something like that like jesus like the first people who were really like this like uh, if you read spangler's decline of the west he talks about fucking hippies there's this, this group in germany called the wandervogel huh. Who were basically they went on they had these campouts they were youth who would go and count campouts and and go into nature and you know worship nature and probably have sex probably similar to these hippies and tons of them joined the nazi party Damn. it's crazy a few at beloved are keen to discuss president donald trump could this be a sign that many visitors demoralized by his rise are increasingly choosing to retreat into the comfort of the transformational community rather than stick it out with activism in the broader political arena? Mr. Raisnick worries that if this, this is indeed happening, that is part of the growing polarization in America. Julian Rees of Keyframe Entertainment, a producer of films, books, and music on transformational culture based in San Francisco, reckons that the number attending such festivals has nearly doubled in little more than three years, a period which almost dovetails with Mr. Trump's political ascent. Other factors no doubt play a bigger role in swelling attendance at transformational festivals. For starters, they have benefited from the decline in urban rave, down on the taking of dr uh, club drugs like ecstasy. By booking speakers, transformational festivals have attracted folks keen on TED, a popular conference series. Some Oh my God, it's <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> This is so bad. Like, honestly, raves did more for racial justice than any of this shit. Yeah. At least, like, fucking raves at warehouses in the UK where people mm -hmm. just, like, went to go do ecstasy and fucking get their rocks off and get high as fuck and dance. That actually brought white people and black people together. Yeah, like discos did in the United States. Yeah, that shit, like, has actually, like, just hedonistic drug use 
for the hell of it instead of this hippie like oh it's all about me expanding your mind that has done more to end racism than any of this shit they've literally collapsed <laughs> ted talks into this shit and yeah it's like oh it's like you can't even go to a rave anymore and just do drugs and have oh, fun you have oh. to like it has to be like some socially positive thing where you're supposedly helping changing the world when this i mean you, you get I, I I've been I've lived in the Bay Area for like eight years, right? It's very interesting. It's one of the only places where I think like the mainstream flavor of capitalism has this, you know, positive, upbeat, humanistic spirit. But it is this weird, like irrationalist kind of thing. Even though there's a lot of tech going on, the Bay Area is a strange place. The, the, I think you use the word pagan to describe this, and I, I don't, I don't, have a, I don't have a problem with people that have like non-traditional spiritualities. Um, but the problem with trying to have like a newer religious movement or even reviving an old, old ways, or, or even doing this like, you know, kind of we're going to talk about cultural appropriation, but still be orientalist as fuck kind of thing, like. Uh, it's, well, it's this whole idea. It's, 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 I think it's very I difficult for this. It's very difficult for this to translate into a, anything sincere. That it won't be immediately cheapened by its form. Well, I think well, I think I, maybe 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 I've kind of answered my own question here. Like, how does how does this grotesquery work? But I think what Don just said about how you know it isn't just like because before you could have mindless hedonism. But I think a lot of these people do recognize that the world is basically falling apart. But they don't want to mm. do anything about it. They still right. want to just engage in mindless hedonism. So they need to have like this patina of organic, uh, fair trade, uh, socially conscious elements to it that can sort of usage their white guilt while they continue to partake of like the same kind of exactly they were doing before. Wait, weren't we just talking about this with the critical theory shit? I mean, this is the same problem. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like I deliberately selected this piece for like some subtextual. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, what, Jake? You devil, you. Are <laughs> you saying these like forms of you know white self delusion that substitute for politics, subcultural weirdo like pretend self marginal reactions instead of you know being a communist? Like yeah. oh, there's all these kinds of it's postures. So just fucking be a communist you... and fucking party on the weekends, like and just fucking enjoy your life, like uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah like you... a respectable twenty first century adult. You <laughs> just do saying... drugs on the weekends and join the new communist party when it comes out. It's gonna yeah, drop. So just get fucked up for fun and join the communist party. Stop pretending that this hippie shit is has any kind of significance to it beyond your own personal hedonism. You're not expanding your mind when you're doing acid. You're not tapping into some spiritual dimensions of our mind that we normally can't see. You're literally just increasing the amount of serotonin in your brain and making the parts of your brain that, you know, reduce the filters of information to lower. So it's, 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 you're, you're fucking with the chemicals in your brain and these chemicals can create religious experiences. So just, it's, well, I've never done enough drugs for the party to manifest. Yeah. So. And if you do it for long enough, you're going to have like the fucking same problems that schizophrenic people have when they're yeah, older, like I, basically I losing that... the ability to like feel emotions and like, make the basic connections that allow you to like function as a normal human and then being. and then the thing you enjoy you most can, you can do a bunch of Molly talks. And all of a sudden everyone's one with each other blah 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 what was that jake yeah and then the thing and then you're hollow like a hollowed out shell and all you enjoy are ted docs going <laughs> to the local organic market 
and yeah. watching 60 minutes and being concerned about well, drop yeah trading trading your uh, fresh grown local organic lsd for on for sex with a 16 year old is basically <laughs> like critical theory web. when you think about it yeah you forgot the dark web that's very it's uh, that's the dark web everyone thinks that psychedelic drugs are oh well you know research chemicals you know that's a thing but now we have the dark web so we can just do pure lsd without having to you know worry yeah, about sources i, I wish uh, yeah well, like there's been horror stories of people getting the wrong drugs off the dark web taking an overdose and tripping for 38 days and shit so like yeah stop acting like your drug culture is all safe now because we are ancap like cyber utopia <laughs> i mean really like uh, okay think about it these, a lot of these people market it's good now i really think a lot of these people probably work at some tech firm have this completely egotistical like brain like this very are very self-centered and make a bunch of money in their day job. And then on the weekend, they go to these festivals and they do tons of Molly and are like overly emotional and attached and shit and just go crazy and get high and then like go back. It's, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a way to have that hedonistic release. These and- are these are the wa- these are the raw water people. These are the raw water people. These are the these are the people who worship Steve Jobs, who the man who believed he could cure his cancer through an advanced juice cleanse. I mean, that's... wow! He, he he believed that. Yeah, like he like his first his first yeah. round of cancer treatment was stuff he looked up on the internet. He did acupuncture and took like these specialized juice mixes. I'm sorry. Well, he... Are are you talking about Bob Marley? <laughs> no, 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 no. Even Bob Marley probably was more you know intelligent than that when it no. came to himself. Steve Jobs, you know the guy that Molebug said should be like the emperor president of the patchwork whatever oh whatever <laughs> but anyway well, i was gonna say that uh, i mean the guy that makes a yeah, face yeah, like oh. no seriously you could probably if you gave these people enough drugs you could probably sell them on neo reaction if you framed it the right way you oh, could yeah. probably get them all to be that's actually what happened once there is this thing called evolve fest it was a festival similar to this it was like one of those things where it was all about like pagan spirituality and you know psychedelic drugs and like techno music and you know that kind of shit and um so you're saying donald there was this guy who was it was all centered around that he gave speeches like at the end of every festival and he was really charismatic and then he started going literally white nationalist and talking about white genocide and how we need to like protect the white race and how the whites need to unite and you know he started going on full white nationalist shit and obviously a lot of people were like oh what the fuck is this and left but he actually did maintain some followers and like had it and turned a popular hippie fest into to basically a hate group and <laughs> wow they had a facebook wow. page up for a while and it was weird because if you look at their facebook page it's all like hippie woo woo shit but then at a certain point they start posting about cultural marxism and white genocide and then it just you know it just get turns more and more blatantly racist there's actually another one of the big players in the alt-right right now actually red ice radio who are basically the the white nationalist equivalent to Infowars. if you look at their early early stuff it's all about conspiracy theories alternative medicine weird neo-spiritual stuff like ufos like paranormal like psychedelic drugs like all that kind of hippie like spiritual stuff 
And then as they go on, they start getting more and more into conspiracy theories. And then they start going white nationalists. It's crazy. Wow. And Red Ice Radio, I mean, they're one of the big players in the alt-right now. So you're saying that Evolve Fest turned to Evola Fest. Evola Fest. Yeah, I mean, I should call it Evola Fest now. But yeah, I mean, I, I when I when we read Evola, I got a kind of a traditionalist hippie vibe from him. Yeah, and I think a lot of people kind of crunchy. I think a lot of people do make assumptions about the hippie movement that it was like a left wing thing. When in reality, the actual politicos in the '60s, even if they did perhaps smoke weed and do acid and listen right. to rock music, they looked down at the hippies because the hippies weren't just kids who did drugs and listened to cool music. They were dropouts. They believed in dropping out of society as the solution to social problems. And the new left believed in the opposite of that. They hated the hippies. There was a very deep yeah. divide between the hippies and the new left. And it wasn't necessarily cultural. It was a political divide. The, the new left wanted to change society. And some of them even gave up on their hippie culture and their attempts to and, and what, anything that was kind of counterculture about them to change society. Whereas the hippies were, you know, it was all culture, no act- action. Yeah, but the the new left ended up being so marginal to the narrative in terms of like the hippies versus hard hats. The idea was that lefties were hippies. Like it was there was an identity statement there. Yeah, and the, but the thing is, the new left, as you go into the seventies, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the all the SDS kids either become Maoist or Trotskyist, mm-hmm. and. Some of them, or they they keep on going with the hippie thing, but that you know basically just eventually just becomes pure hedonism and shit. I mean, I I feel like you know in the after the '60s and you know like the heroin bomber of the '70s, like going Trotskyist or Maoist is kind of like a understandable, confused, clean, think, clean your room, bucko kind of thing. You honestly, know, like, try, I think try that, to get your life together, get build some discipline, well, think about you know, build it, a revolutionary cell of Leninists. I know, have far more respect for waiting. that. I have far more respect for that than just becoming like um, Jerry Rubin and becoming a stock investor. Because that's how he, he started out as a hippie who tried to actually kind of politicize well, the hippies. hippies. The yippies. That was what the yippies were. It was an attempt. Uh, yeah, a hippie that's been beaten by the cops. I used to work at yeah, the it, cafe in <laughs> New York. Yeah, yeah, it's a hippie who was politicized by usually probably by being beat by the cops. And the yippies was a movement to attempt to unite the hippie ideology with Marxist-Leninist political right. ideology. Right. And it's yes, fucking uh, insane to read that worst, shit. Worst merger like, formula ever. Yeah, yeah, it's called but, the Youth International Party. Yeah, the they youth, get youth International Party. They believed in the the youth nation. They yep. believed in national liberation for the youth nation. Yeah, they're even, they're flying, even though, even though Abby, a weed leaf on it, like literally a weed leaf. Even though like Abby Hoffman was like forty five years old. I think it's like, funny <laughs> that Abby Hoffman like went into dealing cocaine, like and got busted for it, and said he was doing like research on being an outlaw. <laughs> <laughs> if you wanna get down, but Abby Hoffman stayed a lefty, and you know he did the whole college circuit debate thing. I think he committed suicide in the eighties, but um, Jerry Rubin went on to become. It's actually funny. Jerry Rubin was the other yippie leader, one of the big ones, and he basically tried every form of orgone therapy acupuncture 
um, Kundalini yoga, whatever, like weird, like the Esalen Institute therapy stuff. He tried all, all of those, like, you know, forms of like clearing your consciousness and like meditating and like destroying your ego. He did all that stuff. And finally, at the end of it all, he decides to become a stock investor. Yeah, he says something along the lines of, it's like I'm the first person to tear off my clothes and say, it's okay to make money. It's yeah. like that kind of sense of feeling like, you know, you're really breaking the mold by embracing like the economic base of society, like that you can only get by spending your life in a contrarian subculture. Yeah, it's very neoliberal too. I mean, he, that was the period. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, it's 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 a transformation of, and that's why I think that you know, I earlier I may have said you know like Marcuse did you know support the hippies in a way, but they did try to envision a better world. But you know that was being as nice as the hippies as I think one could be, because in the end, like it was a very petty bourgeois and reactionary movement. Yeah. All right. I mean, Charles Manson was a hippie. If yeah, the thing like is, Charles Manson. Picture. Well, Charles Manson, I think, was more endemic of how, but crime underground of drugs started to take over the hippie movement because really Charles Manson was a hardened drug criminal, and the Manson right. murders were actually probably done for the purposes of underground drug dealing, according to this one guy. <laughs> according to this one so, guy, Donald. This, according to the could, most, could according to the most realistic explanation, the most realistic explanation of the Manson murders that I've read is that it was basically related to drug dealing, and I think that's pretty likely. Why? And that basically he was using, he was using uh, his family as a drug gang. And yeah, so it was basically it was, it was someone. Yeah, it was sons of anarchy, basically. You know what? I'm I'm gonna push back on that and say that going back to the conversation we were having about critical theory and you know micro tyranny and personal charisma and and power, I think it's perfectly possible that Manson was just a crazy ass cult leader like Ronald. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you're saying he misses calling in academia. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That after he co-wrote that song "Cease to Be" for the Beach Boys, he could have cashed in and you know become a humanities academic and maybe set himself up as you know the, the next the next Al the next Lacan. I mean, I think also Charles Manson's a national socialist. That's another being that right. people that he, he carved a swastika into his forehead in prison, and that he learned that ideology because he had been in prison for a while before the whole family thing. And yeah. the family is, you know, he ends up forming after he fails at music, after he gets out of prison. And, and while he was in prison, he had met, like, underground Nazi biker, bikers who were, like, meth gangs and shit. Like, he got connected to that whole world of um, Nazis and bikers and meth mm -hmm. producers. And if that was part of the hippie culture, because there was a certain point where Haight-Ashbury was being flooded with methadrine, which is methamphetamine, basically. And instead of doing acid, everyone was shooting speed. And so there is, a you know, the underground right. drug world of these Nazis and yeah, biker they, types and, the, you know, the, the hippie world all of a sudden collapse into each other. And it just becomes like criminal hedonism. 
Well, because because there was sort of an anti-cop sentiment in the hippies, like they would like, for instance, I think they tried to hire um, or they did hire Hell's Angels. Hell's Angels. Right. To to be guards yeah. at festivals. It's crazy. Um, if you read um if you read uh this the the electric Kool-Aid acid test, they talk about um like hanging out with the Hell's Angels and doing acid and like how cool the Hell's Angels are. And, like Alan Ginsberg, <laughs> like partied with the hell's angels and how cool it was you know and it's like wait a second like alan misbury was gay like did they know that he was was he out of the closet at this party well may, may, maybe he was there he was having gay meth biker sex who knows who knows maybe the whole maybe the hell's I, angels I would, were gay bikers <laughs> i would definitely i would bet money that he was having gay meth biker sex yeah but I, uh i mean not not to see it but just you know I, I got five on it like but it's crazy like they they tried to hire them for the ultimate festival oh yeah grateful dead recommended it they bet they hire them as security guards for the ultimate festival instead of the cops and so there was this idea that oh yeah man instead of like having the state and the man do it we're gonna have the real people like police it. <laughs> the lumpen up. it's, it's the, yeah. lumpen. They're the revolutionary yeah. class they got the vanguard they, of the lumpen yeah the lump it's the lumpen yeah so they hired the lumpen and, and it's like i love the fucking movie give me shelter yeah. Yeah. that movie is a classic i've seen it so many times and there's just such crazy scenes of like people with swastikas like carved into their jackets like walking around like with knives like looking all like sketchy and just total like hippie dropout like weirdos walking around along that side them and you can almost kind of understand why some people saw like a kind of neo-fascism within the hippie movement at that point and the, well I, th the, I thought the most interesting uh well the most like um nazi thing about charles manson was his um his like apocalyptic myth about race war that he thought was embedded in the song, the Beatles song, Helter Skelter. That's what he thought was the meaning of that song. And he thought it was some kind of prophecy. And he's kind of yeah. tapping and in, tapping into a, a, an American tradition goes back to the founding fathers. And even before of assuming that two races couldn't live next to each other without there being eventually a genocidal race war. Uh, this, yeah. There's the whole a, race a, war a, idea. of Helter Skelter. The tendency in American thought that goes back over 400 years. Um, he actually lately before he died recently, he actually had this thing. I'm trying. It was called Atwa. I think it was like uh, I'm trying to remember what it was that it was. Is that that Carl. system of a down song? No, hold on. Yeah, he had this thing called Air Treaty Water Animals Atwa <clears throat> that he he created this whole theology based around ecology while he was in prison towards the end of his um. Maybe System of a Down. I don't know. I don't know that band at all. But um, I, I, it's, I, it's, it's, it's possible. Yeah, but he did create this weird thing called Air Tree Water Animals, where he like talks. He creates this whole ecological mandate where we have to like become one with the earth. And there are these weird like people who are trying to promote Charles Manson as like the new like mystical fascist leader. Like uh, this guy James Mason. He wrote this book called Siege, which basically argues for like white nationalist like terrorist cells, and uh, he also had this idea of universal order that was based off the ideology of Charles Manson combined with Adolf Hitler. And wow, Manson what? Manson is a national socialist, and that's a hell of a combination. I think that he saw how the hippie movement, with its kind of micro patriarchalism was a way to like get strong control over someone and he was also a criminal and so i think a lot of uh the crimes related to manson had to do with you know 
they drugs. <laughs> I mean, I th- I think the best thing about like the weird race racial prophecy thing is like he thought that the black people would win the race war, but when they would <laughs> they would like come out, they would come out of hiding. No, no, this is the actual prophecy. Because they would like they would like instigate the race war, the Manson Vanguard, and then they would go into hiding for a bit, oh. wait it out, wait out, <laughs> wait it out, and when the black people won, they would come out and they would rule over the black people. <laughs> wait, what? Because the black people couldn't possibly run a civilization. Yeah. Oh. Wow, wow. that's so racist. What that's rate, but that's that's like we that's racist in this weird way where they they think that white people couldn't can't beat the black people. No, it's like it's just <laughs> like, they, they, like, they, they, like, like 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 white people. Oh, white white civilization so great. Well, they just got fucking <laughs> well, genocided. It's how so people big, they, they, it's how deal. people white nationalists like essentialize black people as being more like having more vitality and mm, more okay. strength. In a way, yeah. And so the idea and that's is why a... the, the white woman is like always like a threat of, of right of, because know, they're not cucked like the white man. I see. So yeah, exactly. The whole idea of being cucked is like related to black people because there's this whole white right, like, right, right. anxiety. It's it's fucking fucked so, up. So the image, the idea they have is basically like black people would beat the white people in the war. And then, like, once they won, they'd be like, oh, shit, we don't have anyone to tell us what to do. And then they would pop out and be like, well, here we are. Like, oh, thank God, there's still some white people. Oh, my left. God, it's Charles Manson. Well, basically, Charles Manson is, like, expecting them to try to do communization or something and basically, like, kill all the specialists <laughs> <laughs> and not be able to run society. So yeah, You guys but, have to... That's, that's right. We, we communization really is more. helter-skelter, if you think about it. <laughs> I want you to... Let's... let's elaborate on this so how, how <laughs> communization is helter skelter so you know after the race war the inhabitants are like damn it's really hard to do economic planning based on endnotes too what are we going to do like <laughs> talk, yes, to, exactly. talk to me talk to me about yeah. this that that Jasper Barnes is pretty unreadable, honestly. No, think about it. Yeah. If you had like a, if you had like a, like basically like the Endnotes version of Helter Skelter, where basically you have this huge like revolution where you just burn everything down and kill all the specialists and like try to just, like restart agriculture from scratch and it's just chaos and like yeah, like uh, some Nazis would like pop up and like take over and like rule over you. Like, it's, <laughs> Well, at least we'd be free from mediation, Donald. But yeah, like, uh, I'm pretty sure in America, if there actually had been a sort of black revolution, it would have been more of like a socialist revolution. Yeah, I mean, I... I, But I I, guess if you're a Nazi, you think socialism can't work, so... How the the hell did we get here? What the fuck is going on? Well, we're we're, we're talking about hippies, and we're talking about Manson now. We're elaborating on on Charles Manson. Even if I misused that term. We're elaborating on Charles Manson's theory of history. 